Spread Great Ideas is meant to increase the signal in a world awash in noise. I'm your curator and host, Brian David Crane, and it is my quest to share the learnings of the world's most interesting people, the disruptors, the outliers, the libertines, and those who've been unconventionally successful so that we can become a little bit wiser together. So I'm sitting here today with a new friend of mine here in Ubudia named Rodolfo Young. And he is someone that I've seen around Ubud quite a bit over the past couple of years. And we happened to start talking um, recently at uh, Alchemy, one of the restaurants that's uh, local to both of us. And he's got a fascinating story. And he's someone who has gone to the edge in a couple different ways, um, particularly when it comes to silence and it comes to introspection that we're going to talk about today and has gone probably further than just about anybody else. I know he's a motivational speaker. He's a fellow American like me, but also an expat, fell in love with a European woman and um, uh, also lives here. So Rodolfo, thanks for coming in. A pleasure. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah. So for people listening, give me kind of an idea of how you actually wound up here in Bali and a little bit of your background. Sure. So Bali, well, I've got to, I've got to trace back quite a bit, actually. Um, back in San Diego, California, that's where I grew up. I was born in Mexico, but left when I was like nine months old. Grew up in San Diego, and, and at some point, as I started developing along this personal development journey and, you know, all sorts of different modalities of healing and body work and energy work and shamanic work and all these things, um, I had opened a center, and it was a nonprofit center. Mm. And I really lived by that idea of nonprofit, meaning there was no profit at all. <laughs> and I went into unintentionally, debt. Like, yeah, unintentionally exactly. or intentionally, yeah. <laughs> I, I went about 40 or 50 grand in debt putting this out into the community and having a great center and a great service to the community, but it, it was killing me. Huh. And so I did what, you know, anybody in great debt does. They, they leave the country quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I actually did try. I tried to do it the right way. Uh, I called a bankruptcy lawyer and at some point the debt was, was building up and then all my credit cards, like interest rates had fluctuated and all my credit cards all of a sudden shifted from like 0% intro APRs and this and that to 22, 25% interest rates. And that was going to be the next month that I was going to have to pay those. And I, there was no way. I had no ability to do that. And so I called a bankruptcy lawyer and I said, look, I've been paying well, but uh, next month I can't pay anything. Uh, yeah. It's just not going to happen. I'd like to file for bankruptcy. And he, and he kind of sighed on the phone and he goes, well, that's not how it works. What do you mean? Like, I'm trying to be proactive, responsible here to, you know, do this in, in a good fashion that either even I can make a deal with the credit cards or something like that. He goes, no, no, we can't even process anything or do any paperwork until you're at least three months in default. Huh. So I responded to him and I said, so, so you're saying until I've irresponsibly stopped paying, then you can give me the bailout. Then you can help me out. Then I can do it the proper way. So, yeah, yeah, you, you have to have not paid. And from what I'm looking at, you have excellent credit right now. So, yeah, there's no way we could give this to you. Huh. So, you're saying don't pay. He goes, no, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm saying books, take a second job, do this, do that. I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. So, yeah. cool, I won't pay. Thank you. Hung up the phone <laughs> and took off. Um, about two or three months later, I had... I'd actually taken whatever the rest of the balance was that I had in credit cards and did an attempt to do one last push on a, a book I had just written. Okay. I think it was my 
third book at the time, thinking this was going to be my masterpiece and finding after I did a soft launch that people didn't get more than like halfway through. It was uh, a personal development book based in the idea of actually taking you through the journey of, of real growth. And normally the first step is discomfort. Huh. So people would get to that step and put the book down. <laughs> and so I had taken probably about nine or 10 grand out to do this book launch. It was the last that I had as credit. I had nothing in the bank of, of assets and said, okay, this didn't work. I have about nine grand left in the bank. I'm just going to take off. Yeah. And so I did. I, I went on a world tour, the intention to learn from different cultures and traditions, more skills and tools to put on, on my belt and also to teach as I went along. And make it hard to find you for these uh, default exactly. payments. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ended up here in Bali, uh, intending to be here just for two weeks. And it's been about 11 years now. <laughs> and so I think that's a, the common story here in Bali, Indonesia. That yeah, you, you get you, into the... You just find yourself and you, you, you stay. Mm. So how does that play in then with the little bit of the story that I'd heard from you previously, which was you were, you were in the military in the States and you were deployed to Iraq. Yeah for at least a part of time during uh, yeah. um, the war. Yeah. yeah. And from 2004 or whatnot. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, so you ex-military, ex-special operations. Yeah. Yeah. And then you were in university. Uh, and when did you decide to do this nonprofit? That was post, post-school? So that was, yeah, that was post-school. Um, essentially what happened was I, I joined the military in 1998. Okay. Uh, as a reservist, my thought was, oh, you know, the, the reserves, they're, they're in reserve. They stay at home. I was very wrong about that. The real, real way that it works is you have active duty personnel that are strategically placed in different places around the world at bases that we already have a presence in that country. If we don't have a presence in a country that we intend to go into, mm. which is often called an invasion, mm. <laughs> <laughs> then the reserves go. Okay. They call up the reserves, they activate them, and, and you go. So I ended up in the Middle East uh, doing quite a bit. Post 9-11. Post 9-11, about yeah. nine months, I guess, afterwards. Um, pretty much whatever the official wartime was, yeah. which really only lasted about two months. I was there two weeks before and two weeks after that and, and during. And that all happened, I guess, in 2000... I'm totally terrible with, with timelines, but I think 2007-ish, okay. somewhere around that time. And before then, I had already started training in massage therapy and body work and things like that. And so I was already a little bit on this path and it was a good balance for me. Yeah, And I was also in university at the same time because I was a reservist, which meant I could stay at home, uh, study, do my real life, and then had the weekend stuff with the military yeah. until I got activated. Once I got activated, when I came back, I had a choice to make. I still had two years on my contract, but when you're a reservist, your last two years, you have an option to go into what's called IRR, which is Individual Ready Reserve. Okay. And what it does is you're essentially on call, but you're not part of a team, which actually makes you a little bit more likely to get called up because it means anywhere they need your specific skill sets or training or, or even security clearance that they can pull you in and send you somewhere. Now you're like a free agent in a pool. Pretty yeah. much, yeah. Now, everybody, when we came back from our, our, this deployment, everybody was telling me that's a bad idea. Don't go into IRR right now. You're safe in this moment because you, you just came back with your team, with your unit, and by law at that time, 
they weren't allowed to redeploy a unit until a year after. Like mm. you were supposed to have time to reintegrate into the real world and society, and then then they could send you. Well, my gut, my intuition, whatever you want to call it, just kind of said, no, it's time. I need to get out of this. And I made the choice, regardless of the fact that I had top secret clearance. I had a, a training or skill set that is very, very rare in the military. And so it's a high commodity. I had field experience having been already in the war zone. And everybody was like, you're going to get picked up like that. The second you go freelance, essentially, yeah. you're, you're going to get called up. So I didn't answer the phone for a year. No, she, um, I, I had I had a duffel bag packed, ready at my door for two years. I never got the phone call. Huh. Somehow I lucked out. Huh. But the funny thing is, my unit left two months later and was redeployed because the laws changed. And they went back to Iraq. They went right back. Wow. And so if I had stayed, I would have been sent. Wow. Um, they went back for the surge, probably. Then, if that was the. It was for the peacekeeping mission part okay. of it, uh, which is actually the more dangerous part. <laughs> yeah. Because at that point, you're you're meant to just be protecting an area, and by Geneva codes and laws, you're not supposed to be shooting at Active, people. Yeah. But most of the other countries don't follow that same thing, especially if their own country and they're trying to take it back. And so, it was. It's a much more dangerous situation, and mm. and I feel very lucky that I wasn't involved in that part. Most of what I did when I was overseas was surrender appeals. And so okay. creating through the PSYOP, as you said, I was in special ops, specifically psychological operations, was creating designs and influential marketing, really, that we would then drop through print media, radio, or some video and, and online stuff into the audiences there and mostly into the, the military there saying, look, we're coming by tomorrow. We're going to bomb this yeah, area. Yeah. We don't want to have to kill you. Please just leave. Put yeah. your weapons down and leave. So there were these surrender appeals. And what you won't see in most news media is that I'd say about 78 to 82% of the Iraqi regime put their weapons down and left before the official war ever happened. That's why we were there two weeks before. Interesting. Yeah. Almost like a radio-free Europe. Um, yeah, you're familiar with Radio Free Europe? Yeah yeah, 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 where they're broadcasting out behind this iron curtain telling yes. people what was actually happening. Yeah. Um, in a s sort of a tangential way. Okay. So then. Yeah. So then the center that, or the, the, the training and all these other things that I was doing, there was a military and school. I came back from all of that. And then I think it was when I finished my university time. So that would have been about 2004. That's when I opened my center. I had a, a holistic community center in San Diego, okay. and I had those for two of them for about a year and a half. And that's about when these nonprofit uh, holistic centers kind of went under on me, and and my debt was too big. And at the holistic centers, what were you? Was it like tr treatment recovery? What kind of stuff were you doing? There's a few different things. Uh, the main idea they were called the Center for Connection. Okay. And the idea was, and this came a lot out of my military time, actually. I had seen so much separation consciousness. I'd seen the effects and, and the damage and destruction it creates, both between just individuals and then between countries and, and worldwide. And so I created a center with the idea of, okay, how can we show the, the, the unifying elements and traits and, and spirit of humanity? Mm. And I, my whole intention with everything was to bring people together. And so it was a, a community center where people could come. Even if it was during the day, they could just come and chill out. Uh, there was residences there, there was holistic therapies like massage and stuff like that, workshops, uh, classes. But half the time people would come, especially couples, it was really funny. If they were having fights, 
they would leave their home so they weren't fighting and putting all this negativity in their home and they'd come to this really positively charged center and they'd sit in one of the rooms and just have a conversation mm. and they would they'd remedy their stuff i i because of having that center and so many couples coming through i think i officiated two or three weddings wow okay because people got far enough in the relationship from having a space to actually communicate and so communication connection unity collaboration these were the main ideas of the center and was there any tie-in with um like with the military with folks coming back where there was um how do I say this? You know, you had this like a recovery. Yeah, these people or who were, who were like reintegrated post uh, an active deployment. Not too much at that center. Yeah. Um, well, San Diego is actually a big military town. There wasn't too much of that. the The thing when it comes with military, they don't often know that it's okay to go get help, and if they do, they go through the VA, which at that time didn't have very good resources, especially for mental health and, mm. and stress related things. Today, I'm actually quite surprised and very impressed by the fact that there's so much meditation, mindfulness, even yoga and things like that, that's being presented through the channels of the military mm. to try to offset a lot of this kind of traumatic stress that, that people are coming back with, including yeah. myself. Like I'm, I'm having to work with a lot of things from my own history. Interesting. Isn't there a term for that? The re like Because a lot of the guys who get deployed, they talk about actually coming back is the more difficult part because they've... and. I remember seeing an American sniper, and it's obviously mm -hmm. fictionalized, but but that was the reason a lot of them kept redeploying was they actually felt much more sane with their buddies overseas in a war zone as opposed yeah. to being back in plain vanilla San Diego where there's not even a talk of the war or talk of what's going on overseas, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, partly it's going to be the adrenaline rush. Yeah. And so once you have so much surging through your system and then all of a sudden you're in this calm environment, but you're ready to react, right? And this this even ties in with some of the, the traumatic stress stuff, PTSD and things like that. Your body at a sensation level is, is still responding, reacting. But if the environment doesn't match, mm. then you end up, you know, having episodes and reacting in, in not very good social ways. Yeah. And so then you feel out of place. And just being deeply disconnected from your exactly. wife, from your friends, from exactly. the people around you. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So then getting... To, if you've been in Bali for 11 years, what what happened in that uh, period post shutting down these um, centers? Post shutting down the centers, you go on this sort of world tour to go teach and 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 go out and explore these different modalities. How far into the tour or how far into the trip were you before you wound up in Bali? I was probably maybe seven months, seven eight months in. Okay, uh, came to Bali for two weeks. Some friends had suggested I visit. I was actually in Thailand, never had Bali on my radar. <laughs> Came in, loved it. Um, ended up staying for two months that time. My mom actually came out and joined me for the second month. And then we went to India together for a month. And then that was too intense. And so she went back home. And, yeah. and I went to Berlin and then back to San Diego. And I had the thought of when I was returning to San Diego, okay, I'm going to reopen a center now. I've got all these new teachings and learnings that I want to share. And I looked at the financial side of it. And obviously, by this point, you know, I've kind of ignored this massive debt, but I'm looking to see, okay, how can I restart this, this vision of what I want to give in the world? And I looked and I said, well, it would take me this much money in order to restart, get a new venue, do the promotion, build the audience, build the community. I could take that same amount, go back to Bali, live like a king for a year, and mm. actually really do my own personal healing that was necessary. 
and come back with with the strength to actually make something successful. Mm. And that that was the choice that I made. I, I ended up coming back to Bali with a one way ticket, and didn't actually return to the states until five years later. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I stayed out in Southeast Asia the whole time. Wow. Okay. So, which is an interesting segue because I want to ask you about the changes that you've seen in Ubud, mm. in Bali in general, but in Ubud in particular. And the, to frame that question, a friend of mine has often said that when he first got here, it was way more new age. And that now it's way more digital nomad centric. That as the internet has gotten better, the the mix of people has definitely changed. It went oh, yeah. from being very new age, yeah, but people were no one was working online because the internet was horrible here, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> the so, infrastructure wasn't here yet. Yeah, so how has it changed? Is that a fair assessment of? Uh, yeah, that's a big piece. What it my assessment was when I first got here, you had you had some very new agey, hippie, crunchy I, I like, people who I think are more into the nature and like. Well, walk around barefoot and this and that. I, I call them the crunchies. Mm-hmm. Um, Grounding 24-7. Yes, exactly. Yeah. They um, they were the prevalent community that was here. At the same time, there was a big fashion industry, so a lot of um, festival fashion kind of people that huh. are doing more the natural wear and organic T-shirts and things like that. And, and you know, you get more of this bohemian kind of style. A lot of them were here. Uh, we called them the leather feather crowd. <laughs> huh, okay. And that was because the production costs are so low, but the quality of what the Balinese people create artistically is amazing. And so there was a huge amount of people of that here. And so that was kind of the mix. And then you had people that were coming here for healing or just escape or just to be in a, a vibrant environment. And that was probably more where I, where I fit in. Mm. Over time, as the infrastructure started to come in, you started to see both digital nomads coming in, but also I guess people that had a little bit more money that weren't coming specifically to heal, but were coming to set up shop. Mm. And so you got more entrepreneurs, more people, not just digitally, but also people who were building businesses here. Also the legalities around doing that were shifting and becoming easier uh, and, or at least more clear. And so more and more businesses were coming. And then eventually you have a community where there's, you know, kind of an entire expat bubble community that has the Balinese involved, but isn't really involved in the Balinese culture. Yeah, sits on top of it exactly. in a way. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, you get more of the digital nomads coming in with a lot more money. And so then there was, there was kind of a shift that happened where people had more money and less desire to be doing, we'll say, the inner work mm. and more desire to be having fun. And so now I think it's shifted a lot to being that Bali and Ubud especially isn't really a, a place of healing anymore in mm. my mind. Mm. It's more a place of play. Yeah, almost, which can um, be healing. Almost, almost hedonistic in a way. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's become more of a place of distraction. Mm. Um, only because there's so many things to do. There's still a lot of healing modalities and workshops and retreats and things, and, and they're powerful. But there's so many, and then there's so many activities and the community's grown so large that you can't really deeply connect with anybody, and it's so transient that I think the what the impact has been is that now we have this amazing diversity, but at the same time, it's almost like you take, if you were to pour out some water, if you had a deep container, the water would go deep. But now we have this very wide container, which means the water stays shallow. Interesting. Good analogy. Okay. Good analogy. I mean, I've often told people that 
Ubud in one sense is like living at a festival mm -hmm. yeah. and your villa is your tent. The difference is, is that you can go back and take a shower at night yeah. and sleep in a bed. Yeah. Um, but it's very much has that festival atmosphere of you get on a bike, you go out, you just see what's happening. And, um, but it is, it can be quite shallow. Like you said. Yeah. 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 And because it almost is a victim of its own success. And that it's, I think as it's, uh, um, as people come and have a positive experience, probably even magnified more by social media that they tell everybody else about it. It creates yeah. a self-fulfilling cycle of, um, yeah, it's just a victim yeah. of its own success yeah. in a way. And so. you start getting only one, one facet of the experiences. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like an Instagram photo where you see it, but you don't see the, you know, dozen other photos that it took to get to that. Yeah. And so you only see these massive, you know, parties or, or events or experiences that people are having at these peak moments but not the depth of what it took to get to that or to build it or to create it and all that. Yeah. Yeah. All the, uh, the sitting in traffic. I mean, just as yes, an example, exactly. like the sitting in traffic, the fact the power goes out, um, whatever. I mean, all the, yeah. the, 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 well, the balance is the life <laughs> that is. Yeah. 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 Okay. So let's pivot then. Cause I, one thing that I find really interesting about you is your, your, your time in silence, but it started doing Vipassana's, or Vipassana's, as I should call it. Um, so explain what those are, and then explain how you actually went into like a much broader, larger, yeah. <laughs> yeah, larger, larger, larger experience of silence. Yeah, so part of my personal development journey was uh, going and doing these Vipassana uh, courses, which are 10-day silent retreats. I wouldn't even call them retreats. It's really a course because you're not retreating, you're, you're going in. And you, you're silent, noble silence for those 10, it's technically 11 days. And you're meditating around 11 hours a day. So it's sitting. Like it's sitting, you're there, you're like, like you have a break every hour or so for five minutes and then right back to whoosh, go in, see the thoughts, feel the sensations and move with it. And so I already knew the benefits of silence and I knew the, obviously the benefits of meditation and, and other forms of self-awareness and self-introspection. In 2011, I was already here, settled in pretty well in Bali. My life was going great. That's the year that I did my, my TEDx talk. Uh, I was actually in, in conversations with the governor of Bali and talking about setting up myself and, and a group of us, setting up this big eco project to make Bali like the example for the world of what could, what could be done organically and eco and, and as you know, just a, a project or a prototype yeah. for a system. Um, and Exciting. then my, yeah, then my, my partner at the time brought the cherry on the top of the cake and, and she came and she said, I'm pregnant. And I remember thinking for all the experiences I've had from, you know, the levels of military stuff to the levels of all my personal development and workshops and achievements and everything, none of it mattered compared to this feeling and anticipation to be a father. Hmm. I was very ready at that time. I was like, yes. Now is this is like the perfect next step for me. Yeah, the stars have aligned. Yeah. Yeah. And super excited and I put all my energy and all my attention into it. And I often say when I when I'm sharing this in talks and things that, you know, life is about ups and downs. We we live in a duality in this this reality. And so we have to learn how to fall with grace. And I had not. So in two thousand eleven the at the end of it, she miscarried. Mm. She just almost shy of like three months mm. in the first trimester. And it, it really devastated us, you know, having put so much of our energy and attention and we'll, we'll call it our value, like our significance 
you, you know, people are always looking for what's my purpose in life. And for me at that moment, it was like, yes, this is my purpose. I was born for this yeah. to be a father. And when it didn't happen, I, it just, it crushed me. It ended up making me lose the relationship, but mostly it made me lose my confidence. Mm. And so I plummeted. I went from like the top of the mountain and just went somersaulting down. And I think there was a couple cliffs in, in between where it was just like, ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know human nature. Human nature is normally to go outward, try to distract ourselves, to fill in the cracks with, with different things. And I didn't want to do that. I had experienced silence and, and its benefit. And I thought, okay, let me go in. Let me see if I can heal this heart that felt like it was shattered into a million tiny pieces. And no matter which way I stepped, I was stepping on shattered heart. <laughs> and so I went in for 365 days. And that's why I chose to be silent for a full year. Ben, and this was here in Bali? And this so, was here in Bali. Yeah. Uh, I did travel a little bit during that time. Um, but yeah, the primarily was here in, in Ubud. And yeah, it was huh. it was an intense period. Um, obviously, it wasn't just the practice of silence, but it was deep introspection, reflection, looking at what I was feeling, why I was feeling it. But mostly what I noticed, and, and I, I came almost to the very end of that year, like I probably had one week, more week left. And I looked in, I thought, okay, let me see, is my heart, you know, complete? Do I feel good again? Um, there had been a story in my mind that said, you know, my heart will be healed. And by the time I come out of silence, I will have found a new partner and I'll be on my way to fatherhood again. That wasn't the high case. High expectations. <laughs> yes, yeah. very high expectations. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't the case. My heart still hurt. And I thought, well, shoot, I failed again. And that was, it was in that again that something became clear to me that there had been a story before a failure. And it was a failure of not being worthy to be a father. That that's why this had all happened. Hmm. And then I looked Somehow further. cosmically brought this down upon yeah, yourself? Right? Like there was, but all just story. And then looking back further into my history and going, oh, and in this moment, I thought I failed. And in this moment, I thought I failed. And I had carried as an identity a sense of failure. That was what was being held on to. When I hmm. could let that go, suddenly I realized, wow, my heart isn't broken. Hmm. There was a moment that it felt broken. And that was an experience that then passed in the same moment that it happened. But the story I kept carrying with me. Of it still being broken. Exactly. Mm. The story of it being broken, the story of, of being a failure, the story of not being enough, the story that if I go and I try this again, it's too risky because it could happen again. All this is just story. And so my greatest lesson coming out of that first year in silence was that our, our wholeness, our purpose, our completion, our happiness, our joy doesn't come ever from something we're going to discover outside of us mm. because that's just adding layers, but rather it comes from uncovering the stories, the emotions, the protections, uncovering all the stuff that we, we've placed on top of mm. who we already are. And that piece of us never changes. It stays whole. It stays potent. It stays pure all the time. We just cover it up with stuff. It's somewhat similar to that phrase that Landmark teaches, which is that we're meaning-making machines, yeah. that we take what happens to us and we assign a meaning that can go uh, in any number of directions. And what you just talked about was essentially, if I, as I understood it, un, kind of unwrapping the onion. You yeah, know? yeah. And pulling back the layers. Yeah. yeah. And then even taking it from where Landmark would say we're meaning-making machines of what we see and experience externally, we're also doing that about making our identity a meaning. Like, I am this because it means this. I am this because it means this. But 
that meaning was a story. Mm. If we can let it go of that, then we actually find that at our core, we're technically emptiness. Mm. We're a potential possibility in every moment. And then we have the power of choice as to which direction we point that. Mm. It's powerful. Okay. It's powerful. I, 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 it's going to take me a minute to kind of <laughs> sort, sort through <laughs> this that. Is, this is my lifetime of, of what, what I've learned and distilled into something. So take your time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm, it's, yeah. Let, let me, let me, let me, let me chew on that. I mean, so, <laughs> um, but this, 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 this first year of silence was not your only year of silence. No. So, I came out of that silence and... Before you say that, yeah. before you speak to that, I just have this mental image of Anthony Hopkins from um, <laughs> Legends of the Fall. Legend no, <laughs> le le no leg Legends of the Fall. At the end oh. of Legends of the Fall, there's a scene where he's had a... Um, I think he's had a partial stroke and he carries a chalkboard around around his neck in order to write messages on it, oh, in order yeah, to be able I to communicate that. with uh, yeah. everyone else. So... If you're not talking, but yet you still need to interact. operate in the world and interact, yeah. How? What was the logistics of how that happened? How did you? Yeah. <laughs> how did you do it, that? It's so funny. This is such a common question, and I think it's because we kind of pigeonhole ourselves into a perspective of what we've experienced ourselves, and we think, well, if you're not doing this, then I mean, how can you do anything? But imagine the the millions of deaf people who are mute and can't speak not by choice, but literally they just can't, and they get by fine. Mm. Um, we also look at the fact that, that communication is probably 10, 12% the words that we use, another 12, 14% the tonality, and the rest is body language. We really actually express and communicate through our bodies, not through our words. The words often get in the way. Mm. We can choose certain words with a meaning we've assigned it, and the person hearing it has a different meaning. Mm. Very true. And so, yeah, yeah it, it's it's funny because that is the question I'm always asked, and it's because most of us haven't had the experience of being in silence for a long duration, and so it's just outside the possibility of things. And and it's an interesting concept because what if we took that into everything in life and we thought, wow, this thing that I think is impossible for me or that I just don't see as a possibility as a project or a business or something that I'm creating, what if I looked at it differently and thought, okay, this has been done at some point by somebody. Or maybe it's never been done, but there's the, what would the possibility be? Mm. And the moment we open to that, all of a sudden the possible solutions start coming. But as long as we're in the no mindset saying, according to my perspective, my history and what I've experienced, that's this just can't not be done. possible, can't yeah. be done, well, then it'll, it'll stay that way. Mm. There's, a, there's a thread there reminds me of the book the magic of thinking big which is to get yourself yeah you're nodding along so i assume you're familiar with the book but the, the idea of getting yourself out of i don't remember how he phrases it but it's effectively like getting yourself up and out of your existing paradigm um yeah and i think that's i i, I the way i interpret the silence is almost like doing something that really scares you to kind of flex the courage muscle in a way, because it also says, I didn't think I could do that. And now I realize that I can. And so what else is there in my life that mm -hmm. I've been told either mentally or by others that I can't do. And now I'm going to try doing it. Um, yeah. 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 And even at an even simpler level, it, it just, it opens up the creativity of mm -hmm. life instead of trying to just select from what's being given or what's being, what's been done and trying to just do it better but rather we can look at stuff and go, wow, could this be done differently? Mm. 
and that's a whole other perspective to take. Mm. You know, when I think it was in my first year in silence, people started challenging me to things. They're like, well, how would you do this? So, well, let me find out. And I would go do it. I, like I went to a drive-thru once to order food. It was just a funny experience. Like, How did it work? I just skipped over the machine part and I went straight to the window. And handed them a piece of paper with yeah. your order? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's so simple sometimes the solution around stuff. But we have to give ourselves that permission first to say there is the permission for me to do it differently or for it to be different. Hmm. Powerful message. Okay. So let me ask you, if we go to the TEDx talk, there was a couple things in the TEDx talk that you spoke about that I thought were really interesting. And one of them was your description of, mm, I would almost call it the ego. That's not mm -hmm. the phrasing that you use, but it was this three-part stack when you start from body, then you go to mind, then you go to soul. Mm -hmm. And can you talk about that for a little bit and how those three layers all sure. so fit together? I think as, as human beings, as people interacting with one another, we have three different layers. And the first layer is essentially the mask. It's the roles that we play. It's the identities that we have. And we have many masks. Like We have a, a, a treasure chest of masks that we can pull from. And we can change them instantaneously. You know, you'll have somebody you know, maybe you're in a, a heated debate with somebody and you're like, ah, and then the phone rings, you're like, ah, hello. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. No, hold on. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just talking with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so we just, we can flip these things like crazy. So the mask is just that. It's the roles and, and we'll be different with our family as we are with our friends, as we are with a partner, as we are with a business person. We're, we're going to be different in all these ways. That's the mask. Then we go beneath the mask and we get to what I call the story. And the story is the way that we see ourselves and the way we think other people see us as well. Mm. I mean, how often do you see people that are so hard on themselves and finally they vulnerably say, well, I know you will think that I'm this. People go, what are you talking I about? I, I think you're the most brilliant, amazing, like radiant person. What? <laughs> and the story is really strong. The story is where all our conditioning, all everything we've ever been told, heard, perceived, um, thought about ourselves, believed, all of it's in there and it's constantly in a, in a flux. You know, this is where a lot of healing modalities or therapies or experiences or workshops, they deal at this level because they're saying, okay, you felt that you were this, let's replace that with this story. And, you know, even NLP and, and things like that work this way. But then you get even deeper. So you had to mask your story and then what I call the essence or, or your spirit or your soul, however you want to define it. Harvey, I think is how you said it in the TED Talk. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can give him a name, Harvey. <laughs> Whatever it is that's, that's at the deepest level, and for me, it's potential. And that's what I was mentioning earlier. It's, it's actually an emptiness. There is no story assigned to it yet. There is no meaning assigned to it yet. But you can choose in any moment the same way you can with your story, the same way that you can with your mask. You can choose that at this deep potential level, today I'm going to be this. Hmm. Or even, and I love the way Tony Robbins talks about this, and it's also a big NLP thing, it's just a state change. Hmm. Oh, I'm really angry because you did this and you did this. Or now I can choose because I know at my deepest level, I am not anger, I am not this feeling, but that is something on top of my potential. I could potentially be happy too. I could potentially be forgiving. I could potentially be excited. I'm going to choose to change that right now. Mm. And you have this powerful state change. Interesting. Okay. And so when, because one of the critiques of Tony Robbins is that the state change doesn't stick sometimes, right? So 
somebody goes through the state change, they're familiar with his work. They 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 implement the state change, and then it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't last. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. what do you think about that? I think it's a cultivation period. Um, you go to events like what Tony would do, and and you know he's a motivational speaker. I, I also do a lot of motivational speaking. And the whole purpose of that is, is to hype people up as, as powerfully as possible, get them in their emotions, in their body, and then in that moment, implant a new story of whatever they're, they're choosing. And maybe that's that they're great success or, you know, find love or whatever it is. And the reason it doesn't stick is because you've been pumped up. And so in that moment, it feels good and you get it. But everything in life takes cultivation. Mm. You know, there, there's a book by a guy named Jeff Olson called The Slight Edge. Mm. amazing book. He talks about the very powerful and so obvious, but not obvious, um, compounding effect of time. That with time, everything compounds. So if if every morning you choose to hit the snooze button, well, then after a few years, you're probably going to have gotten a lot less done. If every day you say, you know what, this, this one little piece of chocolate's not going to do me bad, or this one cigarette's not so bad. Yeah. After time, compounding those small things, yeah. it has a huge effect. Yeah. What if you could consciously choose which way you wanted to do it? Mm. So now you look at, at this state change. If you can constantly be practicing a state change, mm. it's not about the, the one moment peak experience where you were so high on life and you're like, yes, yes, I'm a success, I'm a success. Because that, that's just, not going to stick. Well, because then what happens is you get addicted to going to the Tony Robbins events, right? Yes, that yeah, becomes exactly. the hook of like, yeah. I got to get back to this place because that's where I was at the peak. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Whereas the, the reality is every single day, even if it's not as effective, let's say you, you go, okay, Tony ta- taught me or whoever taught me to make the state change. And so I'm feeling sad. Okay, I'm going to choose to be happy. But you're like, oh, it doesn't feel as, as happy as it was that one time when I did it doesn't matter. Do it. And then do it again the next day. And do it again the next day. And the next time that you're, you're feeling something you don't want to, choose that. Because it's not, it's not actually the fact that you can change it. It's the fact that you're cultivating the quality and the skill mm. of choosing. Yeah. It's building the muscle effectively. Exactly. It's that, that habit-building activity. Exactly. Yeah. And so, in the same way that you look at agriculture, you plant a seed. Yeah. And you know, in today's day and age, we, we have this instant gratification attitude. You plant a seed and they're like, okay, can I harvest? No. Yeah. You yeah. have a season. Yeah. At least one season. <laughs> At least one season yeah. to cultivate that seed, nourish that seed, nurture it, let it grow, and then you can harvest. And that's the same with anything. You know, we, we practice things to develop the qualities so that at some point, not only does it become easier, but it even becomes unconscious. Mm-hmm. And so something that might have triggered a sad state that we would have consciously had to change into a happy state never triggers the sad state. It actually triggers the happy state instead. Hmm. Hmm. So, what are some of the habits that you recommend to people on a to cultivate on a day to day basis? And and let me interject and just say mm-hmm. one of them um, that I have picked up several years ago is daily journaling that has stuck. That I absolutely um, I cherish that one. And I also make my bed first thing in the mornings mm-hmm. and kind of those two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what what are some of them? Somebody comes to you and says, Rodolfo, I want to start. Where do they start? Where do they start in the daily uh, the daily habit? Yeah, I would similar, a daily journaling. I also make my bed first thing in the morning. <laughs> I don't know if that's just a military thing, but. It's a good way uh, to start the day. You feel like you way. got something yeah, done. Yeah. yeah. Like, like first thing, you were productive already. Yep. You can check it off. Feel good about it. Yeah. Um, 
gratitude is a big one. Mm. And so that's, you know, whether you journal it, you list it out. Uh, a new one that I've actually started practicing with my partner is writing down, whether it's at the beginning of the day or the end, better probably at the end, all the ways that you were of value that day. To that other person or just, just in general? In general. Okay. In general. Because I think a big thing that, that is happening in society is we're, as we come more and more in terms of, of being self-reflective, there's a thought or a belief that comes up of going, well, I'm not really significant. I'm mm. not really doing anything. I, I don't have a value. I'm not worthy. Mm. Or I'm not enough for this or for this person or for this promotion or for, for happiness even. And the only way to start to build that in the same way of cultivating is to start noticing where you are significant, mm. where you are having value. Because we'll seek those things and often we'll do them in distortion. So somebody seeking significance will, you know, try to be the the, the life of the party even though they're exhausted. Or um, Tony Robbins, actually, another good example from him, he talks about this idea of significance and, you know, somebody who might go and do an armed robbery or kill somebody else, it's not even that they wanted to kill them. They just wanted to know that in that moment, they because they've got a gun to your head, yeah. they're the most significant person in your life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've and heard him talk about this. Somebody, some, right. somebody who you don't, you walk by on the street and look at, and don't pay any sort of attention to them. They walk up, they put a gun to your head, they become from They're a zero to it. a ten yes. in terms of significance in your life. Exactly. Yeah? And so when when we think that finding that significance or that value is going to be just a sudden thing or one act, then it's very distorted and can be dangerous. Mm. But if we know that in looking at even the small things, you know, my partner, you know. She often makes breakfast for us, or sometimes she'll just set up the space for me when I'm going to do a session and, and I'm coming home with a client or something, that those little things are super valuable and significant, but we often look over them. We, we don't think, oh, that didn't make me significant, but of course it did. And so that's the, a big practice is at the end of the day, write at least 10 things, even if you think they're super small, where you were significant that day hmm. in your own life or in another person's life or in a project. In whatever way. I like and, that. And it's a beautiful practice because over time you start noticing, you know, whatever we're focused on is what we start to take more note of. Yeah. And so we start perceiving it more and, and noticing it more. And then all of a sudden that starts growing and all of a sudden you're, you're sitting there going, I'm pretty damn significant. Mm. Like, I don't know how people get through the day without me. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, it's, in, it's interesting as well because then it becomes that the focus is almost on uh, the acts of service for other people. And that is where, yeah, yeah. As you're nodding along. Yeah, yeah. that's, uh, yeah. Um, and you feel like that's where true significance lies. I think kind of so. like a met, in like a meta framework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in the same way that when we're looking for significance in a distorted way, it's often, I want you to need me rather than I want you to appreciate me. Interesting distinction. Okay. I want you to need me as opposed to I want you to appreciate me. So we look for the significance mm. by saying, look, if I wasn't here, like you would fall apart. But what if that's not true? <laughs> then we freak out because we're like, oh my God, they don't actually need me. But the thing is needs, needs versus wants and wants is where appreciation can come in. A need is about survival. Yep. It's like life or death. So if in that moment, not doing it or not being there is going to cause death. Okay. Yeah. You're needed. But most of the time, that's not the case. Yep. It's yep. normally about wants. Yep. And so we have to shift that and go, okay, it's okay not to be needed, but let me do things where it becomes 
a positive impact and influence something that somebody would want. Mm. Clever. I like it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's something that I have run into quite a bit. I wouldn't say recently, but I, I just have noticed where people will say, this is a need of mine and it's actually a want. And there's a lot of confusion around that language. And it's a very, it's a di- if I found it to be a very difficult discussion to have because first you have to get the definitions right and getting the definitions right then entails you need to be able to split these two things up and have yeah. be like yes this actually isn't a need it's just a want just isn't i don't mean to minimize it but y- you need to, it's like uh, little bo peep right you don't want to always <laughs> yeah, um yeah. be crying be crying, uh, be crying wolf, wolf yeah, yeah exactly. otherwise people just go that's not really a need right and they just start yeah. to discount what you're asking for yeah yeah okay <laughs> uh so <laughs> try to bring us back at least a little bit more, at least a little bit more on the topic. So there was another analogy that I had written down from your uh, from your TEDx talk about I'll just call it the umbrella. So could you explain okay. that one? Yeah. So and this wasn't even in was it in my silence? No, this was after my first Vipassana. I had this incredible epiphany moment where, you know, they they talk about those those moments of union with the universe. Literally was like that. Like I, I, I think I stepped outside of myself and I was watching myself interacting. I was on the phone with my sister at the time. I, I was having a bit of an identity, not a crisis, but a, a deep inquiry. I was trying to figure out who I really was that wasn't based off the roles and masks, but who I was below that. And funny enough, it comes back to this idea of needs and wants. Uh, I ended up telling my sister, I said, oh, I, I think I just figured out why I've been having trouble with this. I, who I really am, who who I am at my core and where I would feel fulfilled and happy doesn't need you. Doesn't need you or mom or dad or anybody. Huh. And she hung up on me. <laughs> and um, Challenging conversation. Very challenging yeah, conversation, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, and it, it comes back to what we were just saying. People have this deep feeling that they want to be needed, but what they really want is to be wanted or to be appreciated, to be recognized, acknowledged, and seen. That's really where it comes down to. But we get confused and we think, no, if I'm not needed, then what's my worth? Mm -hmm. And so, of course, that was why that conversation was difficult. But what Hmm. it was, was I I had this epiphany moment, and I I had this smile on my face. I couldn't wipe it away. And it was funny. My my sister's like crying and and shouting at me on the other line. I'm just sitting there with a goofy smile. Yeah, you're like, I found it. Yeah, like, (laughs) freedom, (laughs) right? And here was where I made a mistake. I felt this immense wisdom or truth that, that I was seeing. And I thought, this is the truth. And that's, a lot of people make the same mistake, right? Yeah. I found the one thing. Yes, exactly. Like, this is what everybody should know and follow. And so I started running around trying to tell people. And I make this metaphor about it being kind of like an umbrella society. You know, when it rains, what do most people do? Grab their umbrella. They grab their umbrella. They cover up. They don't want to get wet. But all the rain does is it washes away the facade. Mm -hmm. It takes all the dirt, the mud, the stuff that's on top, and it it reveals what's beneath it. Mm -hmm. It reveals the truth. And so everybody's got their umbrellas. And this is essentially our conditioning. It's our comfort zones. It's, it's the reality we paint around ourselves. And having had my umbrella just tossed out of my hand, you know, good gust of wind of, of real world checking me, I'm seeing this sea of umbrellas. I'm going, oh, I need to help them take their umbrellas down. But can you imagine if your entire reality is what whatever you've defined in this umbrella 
and some crazy guy comes running over trying to take that from you? No way. It doesn't work. You freak out. And that, and that person's going to be very tiresome as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because people are going to, they're going to just basically be like, I want my own, I don't want you to take it away. <laughs> yeah, I want, this is yes. my reality, yeah. my existence. Yeah. Why, why I didn't you ask you this? to intrude. Exactly. This is not invited. Mm. And so I learned very quickly, okay, that's, that's not working. And as I dropped in more to it and realized, okay, that's, it wasn't the truth. It was a truth. And maybe there's a whole bunch of other truths. Maybe every single person has a truth that is significant to them. And then that, that dropped me into what's another great habit or, or mindset to have daily and, and as a, a way of life, curiosity. Mm. To be curious about what another person's truth is. And so in that same umbrella analogy, the trick is, first you put down your umbrella. That's your identity, your ego, your mask. You say, okay, let me be open to somebody else's and put this down. And then you walk over and you step underneath somebody's umbrella. You don't try to take it. You don't have any agenda of change, only curiosity. Mm. And in that same way, coming kind of full circle around, if the main thing that people are looking for isn't really a need, but is to be recognized for the choices that they're making, that's exactly what happens. When you go and you're interested in somebody, curiously, not because you're trying to find the, the edge to trick them into a change because you think or this to grab way their would umbrella. be better, yeah. or to grab their umbrella, to change, to do any any agenda, but you just want to know more about how they've chosen to live life. They will welcome you most of the time mm. because finally they're being recognized, they're being seen, mm. and so that for me develops much more sincere and deep connections with one another, much deeper learning. You grow in the process when you get to experience another person's truth and reality. Great analogy. Great analogy. And so how would that tie in? Um, like, how do you, I, I basically, when I say, how does that tie in? Like, how do you deal with people who they have just come out of, let's say they've just come out of their first Vipassana and they are convinced that this is the thing that everyone else should do. And they walk up to you, you've already done a Vipassana, but picture you hadn't. And they say, Rodolfo, I found it. You need to do a Vipassana. They're, yeah, because yeah. and I, and you're smiling, and I because I I see a lot of that in Ubud where oh, you yeah. find somebody has had an epiphany, and they are so keen to tell other people that this is the way, and I mean the way yeah. with a capital T and a capital W, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So how do you handle that that dance? There's two ways I, I look at it. The first is to find rather than reject it, like like somebody's coming to you and they have something that's significant to them. Yeah. And so and the they're same, on fire. They're lit. Yeah, they're on fire. They're like really, really excited. And, and they're probably coming with a, a good intention, thinking that if this is the best thing, the right thing, I want it for everybody, right? And so they believe their story. If you combat that, then you're actually telling them that their truth is wrong in the same way that they're telling you your truth is wrong. So somebody has to drop their own umbrella and say, let me be open to just hearing you. And again, this comes back to this idea of permission. You know, I have these three pillars, acceptance, permission, and expression. Mm. Acceptance is simply the awareness of what's happening in this moment. It's recognizing the reality, not being in denial, not wanting to avoid it, but just looking at it for what it is. And then permission is to allow for change. It's the mm. open-mindedness to expand, to grow, to see other perspectives. And mm. that's where that kind of conversation would happen. If somebody's coming and really like, oh, this and this, I say, great, why is that important to you? What's the payoff? It's, a, it's, it's such a simple question. To yeah. ask me, why is that important to you? 
And then they have to self-reflect, and then they can share actually more vulnerably why they're coming to you with it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I get that. That's actually valuable to me. Let me let me take a look at that. And the you get to see into them more as exactly. well, right? There's exactly. a yeah, like you touched on the vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. And then on another note, if you if if you were coming a little more combative to it, mm. um, a question I have asked people sometimes is, I'll say, okay, great. If if I We'll sit with you for five minutes and listen to all you have to say about this and be very open-minded. Can I tell you about my truth and will you listen to mine? And if they say no, then it, it means they're probably not going to listen to anything else either about you, what you want to hold on to of your own truth. They're, they're on a mission. If they say yes, it means that whatever their truth is, they are actually solidly standing in it mm. through experience, cultivation enough that they're not afraid that hearing another perspective gonna is cause going it to shatter. To, exactly. Yeah. It's just going to add to instead of destroy. Mm. And I think that's a big element it is in conversations, can we know that we're just adding to each other's lives, not trying to change them? Mm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I, 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 you touched on one thread there, which it struck me the, because you, you used a phrase around that person speaking their truth. And it's maybe the final question that we'll get to here, but mm -hmm. th there is, when you're talking to someone else and they say, this is my truth, and they they use it almost as a way of silencing you. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm referring to? Yeah, mm -hmm. they say, this is my truth, and if you don't honor my truth, it means you're somehow invalidating me, right? Yeah. Uh, and I, maybe it ties back full circle with this, the wants versus needs, because it's yeah. a similar dynamic of... Yeah. I, this is a need of mine. No, actually, it's a want. Um, and so the, the 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 speaking of one's truth. In doing that, how yeah, how do you navigate that? When I think that's a good the good a very good framework of saying like, if I listen to you for five minutes and listen to your truth, are you willing to listen to me for five minutes and you know at least consider my truth? Yeah. Um, is that the way that you're then able to, yeah, effectively find a middle ground with people? Either middle ground or at least the recognition. Yeah. Like I said, I think in in the end, everybody just wants to be seen. Mm. But if somebody's truth is something that they've simply adopted and the power for them in it is that everybody else agrees, mm. then it's not actually serving them or other people. Mm. And and that's what often is the case when people are pushing it on somebody else. Is It's almost like if I, if I don't have enough people meeting my quota today that validate this for me, I might have to doubt it. And then I might have to do even deeper work and look at stuff that I don't want to look at about myself. Mm. And that's where I think that kind of conflict happens where mm. people will be like, well, this is my truth. And, you know, if, obviously if you don't get it, then you sh we shouldn't be connecting. It's because there's a fear that what's beneath that is empty. So it's, inter it's interesting because to me, the dynamic that you just described is almost like a missionary. Like if you picture the Mormons, and the Mormons are maybe the easiest example, but any kind of missionary goes out and says, um, I need to convert X number of people, 10, 20, 100 in a certain period of time. And that if I don't do it, either there's something wrong with my message or it invalidates my existence. Yeah. So if you want to get away from that, then how do you still, um, how do you still get up in the morning and affect change? Does that question make sense? Like you, yeah, you, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, okay. I don't know. I might be reaching for two strands that are too far apart. Like you have one hand, which is you want to, you do want to get out and spread your message. Mm -hmm. The other hand, you don't want your belief in that message being valid 
only as far as other people accepting it, maybe is the yeah, way to phrase yeah. that question. And that's where we come back to those three layers, right? Mm. The mask, the story, the essence. Mm. The essence, in my belief, is the same for everybody. It's this potentiality. It's, it's the ability of, of power of choice to choose how you want to live, the truth that you want to have, the reality that you're going to see. And that's literally the focus of emotion, the focus of feeling, the focus of perspective. Like if somebody's always focusing on the negative, their life and the reality is always negative. If they focus on the positive, it's positive. That's a power of choice that comes from this deepest essence. When we look at it from the fact that all three of those things exist at the same time, Right, So you can have your story, you can have the way that you interact as an identity in the world, and you can share your story. But if you're, if you think... Want to say those three again? Yeah. So you, yeah. Um, mask, story, and essence. Okay. Right? Yeah. So you can have your story and you can have your mask, and that's how you're interacting in the world. Okay. But if you forget that beneath all of that, there's this very similar resonance that everybody has of potential then you're going to be stuck in the idea that you also are only your story and your mask. And the problem mm. with that is those are in flux. They're changing all the time based off of who's agreeing, validating, or recognizing it. Mm. Whereas the potential, your power of choice doesn't. That's always yours and yours alone. Mm. That's where the stability is. Mm. The other stuff is just the expressions that we choose on top of it. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. It's all... If you had to describe your your meta worldview, it would be how would you describe it? Like it would be drawing from what? From kind of like the best of the East and the best of the West, in a way, because some of it's yeah. personal growth based, which is very much a Western concept, mm -hmm. and in a way, and then some of it's Eastern and almost like a, a non-dual um, sort of philosophical. Yeah, yeah. I'd say that. Regardless of, of where it was coming from or what traditions and, and philosophies, yeah. ultimately, for me, my worldview is coming from experience, direct experience. Okay. And so if I hear a new philosophy, if I, I am told about some new experience or new, new possibility, I'm always open-minded to it. So I, have a, I call it the yes mindset, and it doesn't mean saying yes to the thing or immediately agreeing. It just means saying, yes, that's possible. Hmm. That's a potential everything is and then having in the, enough curiosity to go experience it so for instance like here in ubu we have ecstatic dance and a lot of people would be like oh yeah, no I don't, I don't dance i don't know no way no way would i do that but what if you just went and you experienced it to find out and that takes curiosity and so yeah really my worldview is is curious experience hmm. very openly looking to see okay what what does this have for me what can I experience? And maybe I experienced nothing out of it, but now I know. But if I try to say and I know turned before over I've that experienced rock. it, that's false. And what about if somebody says that you should mainline heroin or something that you think is... Great <laughs> um, and maybe you haven't had that experience, but no. you also don't think it's going to be the, uh, the profound change would, that you're looking yeah, exactly. for. Yeah, exactly. I think it would probably... That's a great question because there would be things that would probably... There would be no curiosity in or no attraction to. Yeah. Um, and so, like, for, for me, like, substances and things like that, Yeah. not that attracted to it. But even in that, over my lifetime, I've been curious enough to say, okay, well, let me let me have a little little puff of some marijuana. I'm curious. Nothing happened. Let me try a little bit of this. No, nah, nothing happened. 
And that was enough experience for me to kind of be like, I don't need to really, like, I'm not seeking any value from that side of things. Or asking people then about it. So again, it would be... Who have had a multitude of experiences. Exactly. So it would be like, sometimes the direct experience doesn't have to be direct, direct, but it can be by actually asking the curious questions. So maybe you go to somebody who's done a lot of psychedelics and you go, tell me about it. Like, what what have you learned from it? How's it affected you? What's been the impact? Rather than judging it, right? It's a good way to do it. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. Okay, so I do have one one one, <laughs> fi- one final question, one final set of questions. Let's just say so. Part of your theme or your message out in the world is to touch a million hearts. Yeah, mm-hmm. can you share a little bit about that and kind of what the where it comes from? And when I was on your website, you're like two thirds of the way or three quarters of the way to doing that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like seven hundred thousand something. Yeah. And that's a, a very rough estimate. I'm actually pretty sure I'm way past the million. and They I, just haven't pressed the button. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, essentially, when I came out of my first year in silence, somebody asked me, you know, what are you going to do next? Mm. And in my mind, I was, I was thinking, I just did a year in silence. Let me take a break. <laughs> really? But what actually came out of my mouth was, I want to reach 100,000 hearts. And I, don't even, I didn't even know at the time what that meant, why I said it, nothing. And so I, I kind of sat with it. And what started to come through for me was that in that same process of uncovering that I had done for myself over that year of kind of releasing layers of the onion or, or just releasing stories and coming back to this beginner's heart. You know, we, we have the, the philosophy of the beginner's mind in like Zen Buddhism and things, and it's essentially a curious mind. It's the same with the heart. And what would happen if we could come into the world with a curious heart that hasn't made up its mind about somebody, hasn't mm. decided, oh, love is is too romantic or is painful or this and that, but it's just curious. And so in every interaction, actually comes in with that curiosity, that compassion, and that willingness to explore. That for me is what I mean when I say to to reach a million hearts. And, and it moved to a million after 100,000 because that, that happened pretty quick. Is <laughs> blew, blew through that early number, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was... Coming out of the silence, I had some popularity. So, it's a cool. I mean, I when I I remember seeing as a side note, I remember seeing you around Ubud, and somebody said that guy's been in silence for I think it was a year and a half at the point when I saw you, and I was like, really? And I kind of watched you for a while. It's like, how does he how does he navigate? And I remember people coming up and talking to you, and you sitting there nodding along, and yep. yeah. Yeah, very like almost like a mime in a way, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah, expressing yeah, yeah, yourself. Yeah, yeah. I had full conversations. Yeah. It was it was fun. Yeah. Um. But so yeah, you, that's the idea, is is to reach, to inspire one million hearts, the idea isn't to give them any certain belief system or anything like that, but it's more so to say, hey, what would happen if we could look at this moment now, mm. create a safe enough space for your own authentic expression and vulnerability and truth to come forward, and then just share that with each other. And that's That's the crux of it right there, just that is... What would happen if people could be 100% who they truly are in that moment? And it changes in every moment. And allow for that as a permission within society in balance. And with with that message, um, when you talk to people and when you speak publicly and do one-on-one sessions, is that a message that lands with people? Is that something that like when you get to the essence of it, they go, boom, like it hits? Or is it something that... Yeah, is that, is it, does it land? Does it have the punch that you want it to, effectively? It depends. And, yeah. and when I'm giving public talks, for instance, 
lot of it's going to be philosophical and mental. And so the experience, which I, I believe true experience comes from some form of emotion or feeling, like there's mm -hmm. a sensation to it. Uh, it's again why people like Tony Robbins and other large motivational speakers get you excited. They get you in the feeling state. So if I do a one-on-one -on -one session with somebody, I normally mix that with body work and okay. energy work because that way they're actually in their bodies, they're feeling sensations. And the other half of that, and this is where even in conversational kind of coaching or in talks, the other half is to create a safe enough environment and space of acceptance, of openness, of, of curiosity that people feel free and safe to actually express what their truth is or what their questions are, what their insecurities are, or fears are. Okay, because sometimes they just feel blocked around doing that. Yeah, they feel blocked or they think, oh, I'm going to look stupid or, mm. or this isn't going to be welcomed. Mm. It's almost, it's physiological and also, I don't know, therapeutic in a way, right? Yes. Like kind of a, it's, yeah. a, it's a, a truly a holistic uh, um, means of approaching someone. Interesting. Okay. We were just talking about choice, the consequences of choice, and um, sort of the desire for choice, but the desire also to not bear, yeah, bear burden the cost, bear the, bear the burden of choice, yeah? <laughs> um, and so, and it was related to, specifically in relationships, um, so Rodolfo, if you want to go back and kind of say what you had said previously when the mics were off mm -hmm. about you and your fiance, yeah. yeah. Sure, so... Uh, when when my fiance and I first started dating, we recognized we went through three different stages of we'll call it attraction or or how we related. And I think the first one that almost everybody has is you you see somebody attractive, you see someone at a party or you know at a park or wherever at work, and there's a sense inside you, especially if if you haven't even connected. Like half the time, you'll you'll lust after somebody and not know their name for a year. That's when you have a sense of, I need that person, right? If only I was with them. Exactly. Then my things life would, would be so much better, then, yeah. You know? or, or if you see even a friend and, and they're super happy, you're like, I need a relation like that. And, and so we have this sense of need. And hopefully you get to a point where you go, you know what? I, I actually don't need that to be happy, but I would like that. I, I, I want somebody to travel with. I want somebody to have these experiences with. I, I, I want to be in a relationship. To cuddle. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and for instance, with, with my partner and I, we had that need and then we quickly we're like, okay, I don't really need you, but I, I do want you. I, I, I would like to experience a connection with you. And, but here's the thing. I, maybe I also want a connection over there and maybe I want a connection over there too. And in life, we're going to always have this diversity of wants. The real power comes in where we decide to choose one out of all the different wants. And that power is not just in the thing that gets chosen. And it doesn't mean that it's the best thing. It doesn't mean that it's the, the, the thing that's going to be forever either. It just means that you had the empowered choice, the, the, the ability to say, hey, I'm choosing this. Not out of that, everything I know right now, exactly. out of the, to the best of my abilities, this is what I'm choosing. Exactly. And it's not that I was obligated to. It's not that I was expected to. It's not that it, I've been told that was the right thing to, to choose. But I chose it. And, and that's where the power is, is, is that you get to choose. And all of a sudden, it comes with so much more sincerity, so much more authenticity, and also vulnerability. Because if you were the one to choose it, 
means that you're also the one to own the responsibility of that choice. So for my partner and I, for probably the first year, two years or so of our relationship, we made a practice of every month coming together, sitting down, and reaffirming that we were choosing each other, but always with the real freedom not to. Mm. And I think for most people, that's a really scary thought mm. to to either think, well, but doesn't that just give somebody the carte blanche to at any time renege on a commitment? Maybe. But would you want somebody to stay if they weren't choosing to? Would you want somebody to stay because they were afraid of losing something out of FOMO, expectation, obligation? Or would you want somebody there because they, in that moment, again, chose to stay? I think it's an important distinction to say it's not that they are not choosing you. There's a way that it was phrased mm-hmm. that it would basically be like mm, that maybe you realize that the value of the relationship there's there's an intrinsic value in the relationship and that's what you're choosing as opposed to choosing to be with someone else or choosing another experience, right? And yeah. and and so what I had asked you when we were talking uh off off recording was how that sequentially works in a relationship where now you and her are engaged and you've said I'm committed like you've 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 made a public commitment to one another you put a ring on her finger um and then you ask that question subsequent to that do you choose to be with me or well, I don't know how you phrase it mm-hmm. um if the answer that she gives at that point is no I don't choose to be with you how does that impact the commitment that was made previously? That's that that that's where I was going with that line mm-hmm. of question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're ultimately, I would say, and this is a difficult one to put out there. Um, you know, I, I say that our history doesn't make us who we are; it's it brings us to where we are. Mm. And there's a, a very big difference in in saying that. You know, we often say, let's say, for instance, if if the choices that I made in my past and the commitments that I make that's who I am, then that would say that if I choose otherwise all of a sudden, then that makes me somebody who breaks that commitment. But those choices brought me to the place of making this choice. An easier example than a relationship. Mm. Those choices brought me to the place of making this choice. Yeah. Okay. An an easier example. Relationship obviously has so many other dynamics to to be looked at. Uh, I'll give a different example. Um, Several years back, I was asked to house sit for somebody here in Bali. And I didn't know at the time that it included dog sitting. It was a very large dog. Nor did I know it was in a villa that was so, like a lot of the villas here are are open plan. But this was open plan looking over a ravine, very jungly. A lot of monkeys would come up, things like this. And just a spooky feeling at night. Yeah, not safe. No. No. But I made a commitment. I said, yes, okay, I'd be happy to, you know, for, I think it was for a week and a half or something. So I go in and I spent the first two or three nights there incredibly uncomfortable. And I thought, you know what? My choice right now is I don't want to be here. Mm. This is not fitting. Now, we say that choice comes with ownership and responsibility. And responsibility to me doesn't mean being committed to your duties that you've said, I'm going to do this. That's obligation. That's not commitment. Um, and nor is it responsibility to me is responsibility is the ability to respond, which means in every moment it could change mm. depending on what you're responding to. 
my responsibility in that moment was this is not comfortable, this doesn't work. But my ownership of what I had committed to was to say, well, let me make sure though that what I was supposed to be doing still gets taken care of. Yep. That's the second part to it. That's the piece. Yeah. It's, it's owning what you have committed to or owning the choice you've made and either communicating, arranging, doing what is necessary to make sure that your choice isn't a... Doesn't cause a net negative for the other person who's basically premised certain decisions in their life. Exactly. Or And also that it's not an abandonment. Yeah. Like there's... Yep. I think one of the reasons in relationship that this is a, a funky one and a scary one to give somebody else the choice to stay or not is because it's too easy if the other person is just looking for convenience mm. rather than real choice, then yeah, as soon as something gets difficult or challenging, which all relationships do, that's actually how you grow stronger, they'll make the choice to leave. But that's out of convenience. So they're actually still not even making the choice. They're just being guided by their own distraction, their own lack of responsibility and, and ownership of something. So mm. how then do mm. we make choices mm. but really own the reason, really understand the clarity of why we want to make that choice, and then are responsible, yeah. meaning a, we're, we're responding with an ability that actually has hopefully a net positive or a, a win-win situation for everybody. And that always happens just mostly through the communication. Uh, we talked earlier about the fact that when you do make a choice, it's a choice that you've made. And even if it's between things or, or people, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're saying one is better than the other. You're simply saying, right now I choose this one. It's kind of like if you have a box of chocolates and they're all the same exact chocolate. Is the fact that you reach for the one third in from the second row mean anything about the rest of them? No. It just meant that that was the one you chose in that moment. So our choices don't necessarily reflect on the thing that we're not choosing. It simply reflects on the thing that we did. Hmm. Hmm. What do you think of the phrase, there are no solutions, only compromises? Mm -hmm. um, I Off the cuff and immediately, I would say I disagree with it. Mm -hmm. I believe... There are not so much compromises, there are choices. And there's a difference. You can look at it and say, okay, how can I how can I still try to get a little bit of all of this? And maybe I just have to give away uh the the fullness of what I wanted from it. But that would be kind of like saying, you know, I, I want to bake whoa, a cake. Whoa, the, and that would be that would be approaching it from a position of uh, there are no solutions, there are there are only compromises. That basically, yeah, like, like if I was if I was to adopt the idea that I'm I have to make a compromise. Yeah, then it would be like if I'm gonna make a cake, and or, or I have a choice. I can make a cake, or I can make a muffin. And for the cake, I need certain ingredients. For the muffin, I need certain ingredients. I have enough ingredients for the muffin, but I really want the cake. And so I say, okay, I'm going to compromise and I'll make the cake, but I just won't put that ingredient in. That to me is a compromise. Whereas the choice is I have the capacity and the ability to respond in this moment to this choice and I can do that wholly, fully, as opposed to doing this only half-ass. That makes sense? Yeah. 
And so we, we don't make our choices just out of convenience. We don't make our choices just out of uh, what we think is the shinier object or anything. We make our choices out of what can I actually show up to. Mm. And honor. And honor. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And honor in the true sense of the word of like actually fulfill, right? Yeah. 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 So, so then that would then lead into something else we talked about, which is that you and I agree to some degree, I think that uh, um, a lot of people don't actually want choices because choices necessitate taking responsibility yeah. or taking ownership or mm-hmm. honoring um, uh, a particular choice, right? Yeah, very true. I mean, we see it in society all the time that we we delegate our decision responsibilities making. and decision-making and choice-making to authority figures all the time in politics, in, in your spirituality, in even education, all these things. And it's almost actually punished if you don't. Like you, you get a child in a classroom who challenges the teacher because they want to see something from a different perspective and they're punished. They're, they're shamed for it. And so it's almost like, oh, sorry, I shouldn't have my own feeling, my own truth about this. I just need to follow yours. So yeah, I think a lot of times, not only from conditioning, but also from a laziness of ownership, mm. we don't want to have to make the choice. Mm. Easier way even to look at this is uh, when you are in a relationship and both parties know that the relationship probably should have ended like three months before. Nobody wants to be the one to say it though. <laughs> Nobody wants to be the, the one that to make the choice. That's a good example. It's like, well, the, the choice was already made. Now you're just, you know, combating what the truth is. Somebody mm. has to take responsibility and it's no, in a relationship has to be both parties. And have that difficult conversation, which, yes. which surfaces the things that have been uh, exactly. beneath the surface. Yeah. Which may actually even save the relationship. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times, cause you actually get to what is on each person's heart and mind. Yeah. And, and I often talk about this and, um, curious how it's going to work into everything we just said about choice. I often say that there's actually only one choice we can make in life. And there's a lot of decisions we can make amongst the diversity of options. And we'll call them like, it's like you make a choice to buy a t-shirt, but you might have a plethora of types of t-shirts. The one choice that we have in life is to surrender or to resist. Hmm. That's it. Either we surrender to what's in this moment or the choices we've made or the decisions or or the commitments we have or we resist it either we surrender to the reality of something or we resist it Hmm. this is always it every single time um you know you you think of in eastern philosophy the idea of non-attachment you know trying to control a situation is resisting change surrender is accepting and knowing that no change is happening maybe let me orient myself to move with the wave towards where i want Hmm. but if you're just resisting it you just get hit with the wave Hmm. So the real choice that there is ever in life is to surrender or to resist. And so then, if I think about this from an architectural standpoint, you have surrender, resist at kind of a a meta level, and then out of that flows certain decisions. So using the wave analogy, you might choose to surrender to the wave, but then you, based on the wave wave might be taking you to shore, but then you have decisions in which you can Yeah, you can point the the board in the direction that you want to go. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of a 
a really useful analogy that I heard once for describing fate versus free will. And the way that it was described to me was, um, if you picture a dog on a chain behind a bicycle and that the dog can run to a certain degree as fast or as slow as it wants, and it can run to a certain degree to the left or the right of the bicycle, but at the end of the day, it still has to run with the bicycle. It can't choose to stop. It can't choose to just um, lay down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, so you have a you have a certain amount of free will. It's not absolute. Yeah. There's also, I think there is some free will. And so saying that like it's all left up to fate. Um, I don't know. There, there there's a tie in there with the choice and 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 then the decisions that come out of it because I think that using the dog analogy with behind the rider on the bicycle, that dog has some decisions about how fast he wants to run or not run. But at the end of the day, he doesn't really have a choice in that he still 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 needs to follow the bicycle. Yeah, I, I think of it. So maybe that's the surrender in, part of the analogy. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I think of it in very practical terms that life is always moving forward mm. and up. That's that's the natural capacity of life. If you're resisting it, then you're normally moving or facing backwards, but still going forward, hmm. or holding on downward while being pulled up. Hmm. And so, what would happen if we actually surrendered? What's an example of holding on downward and being pulled up? And what's an example of yeah? yeah think of backwards? it like a plant, right? This is the easiest analogy to nature. A plant roots down, and so that's its. It finds stability from its history or from its roots, its, its you know, whatever it holds to, but then it grows upward. And it doesn't, like, grow halfway and think, oh, wait, let me, let me just, just hold on to this. And because I'm putting all my nutrients down into my roots now, I can't grow further. Instead, it goes, let me keep going, let me keep going. And then if I need to grow more roots, fine. But it'll happen in parallel. Exactly. It's yeah. the two. Whereas if we're not doing that, then we what we do instead is we're just holding on, controlling, trying to keep something as a status quo, even if it's miserable. People do it all the time. They're like, but at least I know it. It's familiar. Mm. So let me hold on to it. Whereas surrendering to something and allowing that to be the choice is to say, okay, I don't know exactly where this is going to go, but I know I'm moving forward and I know life is moving me forward. Mm. Yeah. My friend Chad often says the universe has my back. Yeah, that's his nice. phrase. Yeah, like the universe that. has my back. Yeah, when he uh, when he feels like he's yeah moving up and up and forward. Um, so if he, if people want to learn more about you, I, I know you are you still doing speeches at Yoga Barn? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, wh- like how do they find you online and what are they what are, what what are they looking for? What do you want them to find you for? Yeah. Yeah. Um, online, if you look under Heart Coach or Rodolfo Young, my website's RodolfoYoung.com. Uh, also, my name for almost any social media, you can find me uh, most active on Instagram at the moment. And I do... Got to go where the fishes are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get your hook in the water. <laughs> exactly. It was like, I'm big on Facebook. Wait, you guys are over there? Oh, yeah, I'm yeah, big yeah, over I got to go over here, you know? Like. Um, I, while I'm still here in Bali, I'll continue doing weekly talks, whether that's at uh, Yoga Barn or Sayuri, Sayuri's Cafe, places... Some of the public forums, um, it's pretty easy to find out where I'm at just looking online uh, at events and things like that that are here. <laughs> um, and otherwise, one-on-one sessions, people can book with me through my site if they look under Rodolfo Young forward slash Almaflow. So I've developed my own style of, of 
coaching, healing, body work, and it's called Alma Flow or Spirit Dance, essentially. Nice. Alma's a, like soul and... Exactly, and, and flow, just like flowing with that soul. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. Yeah. And that, those are the primary ways. I have books that are out there. Look under Rodolfo Young and you can find Who Are You? And some of the other ones are only in print and not actually on Amazon yet. I've uh, seen them around at Ubud. Yeah. Yeah, a couple yeah. places. And then you're going to decamp in the future and head to Germany and start uh, start a family, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's the plan. In April, my fiance and I will be moving to Berlin. Mm-hmm. And so we'll be basing out of there and I'll travel around Europe and continue sharing what I share and, and learning from the people around there. Beautiful. Good luck to you. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure.